Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a- another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase. Ch- wow, Chase Thomas <laughs> coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, wow, what an intro. Uh, also here, my good friend up there in. New York City, Mr. Fangraph's own John Taylor. John, good evening, sir. How are you? Good. Uh, yeah, it's, it's always good when you can start a podcast by forgetting your own name and getting it wrong in the process. <laughs> I, I feel like that's what podcast experts call uh, a plus. Uh, that is true. That is true. Uh, John Taylor, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Uh, just getting ready for playoff baseball. The season's basically over, except for figuring out who's going to win the NL East at this point. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm just... I mean, I, okay, let's be fair. We mm-hmm. The odds are extremely high that one team in particular will win the NL East, but until it's actually all done and dusted, which may be as soon as, like, three hours from now, uh, we we move onward. Well, we might have seen last night, because all it takes is one more Mets loss, and they had a rain out uh, yesterday, so... Or one uh, more Braves win, right? Yeah, either one. Basically yeah. one of the Magic other. number of one. Mm-hmm. But the Marlins pitching, man, it's uh, it's legit. The one thing the Marlins can do is play spoiler here in their rotation. I mean, you know, this is uh, this was part of the deal when you were getting the Marlins the last three. But, I mean, it's still a very, very good position to be in where all you need is one against the Marlins. And, really, the Mets have to be perfect uh, following. Um, did you hear about this? Did you see this? Their sweep uh, in – Atlanta over the weekend. It is interesting, John, uh, listening and reading different folks. Um, I think it was Lauren Thiessen. Is that her name? Uh, for Defector? De- uh, Defector, yes. She had a piece about the Braves and how annoying the Braves are. And she's not wrong. Like, I would imagine, and it's important to, I think, characterize this because I think, by and large, most smart ba- baseball folks uh, are acknowledging that this is not a Mets collapse. Because mm-hmm. they haven't been bad. If you look, it's just the Braves have been what forty games over five hundred since um, early part of June. I want to say mm-hmm. they've just been exceptionally good. The Mets have also been good. They just haven't been that good. Yeah. So yeah, ten game lead later on in the season. That's rough. But the Mets are not. This is not a Metsian collapse by any means. Um, over the weekend, that was rough to not get any wins when you really just needed one to feel like, hey, this can go either way. Uh, going to the last three games to get swept is rough but I thought the piece was interesting because I imagine for a lot of folks uh, a team that strikes out as much as the Braves do and then the Mets just being a single power powerly limited team came back to bite him over the weekend because Dancy Swanson homers in every three games uh, in each of every three games and Matt Olson uh, he's back to who he was uh, months ago so he's figuring some stuff out but it's the solo dingers, and there ha- can't be anything more frustrating than losing a weekend series because your team could not stop just giving up these dumb solo bloop dingers um, mm-hmm. from your aces. And I, I imagine the Braves are a very frustrating team to lose to because it's a lot of not, not a lot of guys on base and a lot of just solo. Just we have the best power team in baseball, and we're either going to hit a home run or strike out for most of our guys. Yeah, and, and beyond that, and something I think we saw throughout that series was how well the Braves are built for this kind of short series encounter where mm-hmm. all they need are five innings from their starters. Not even a full five innings. We saw that with Charlie Morton on Sunday. Just give them 
at least four decent innings from mm-hmm. the starters, and the bullpen will handle the rest. And like you, and on top of that, like you said, it's a team with a ton of power where they can put runs on the board pretty much whenever they feel like it from almost any position in the batting order. Uh, also, like you said, not a team that draws a lot of walks, but a team that does make a good amount of contact, like I said, that does have that power, and is really just going to be a brutal out for any team that faces them first, and if, assuming the Braves win the division, which they almost certainly will, uh, that, that'll either face them in the division series, which would be uh, the winner, I believe, of St. Louis, Philadelphia, because mm-hmm. there's no receding uh, after the first round, correct? I don't think so. No, and then presumably should they get that far against whoever they face in the NLCS, and then beyond that if they make it to the World Series again. This team is just very, very good. And like you said, this is not about the Mets falling apart. Like The Mets the Mets have played very well down for the most part down the stretch. I mean, they went 19-11 and 17-8 and in July, 19-11 in August, 15-11 in September. Um that's all great, you know. I mean, mm. if you want to point to a particular stretch of baseball, I think that Mets fans will be looking back on and going, that was it, that was where we lost the division. It was losing two out of three to the Nationals at the beginning of September and then getting swept by the Cubs at home in the middle of September. Five losses to two games, to two teams rather, way under 500, where even a single extra win there would have made a huge difference. And like you said, too, with that three-game series, especially considering New York held the head-to-head tiebreaker, because there's no more game 163 now. They had the head-to-head tiebreaker at 9-7. to All they had to do was win one more game, and even if the NL East finished in a tie, they would have they would have won the tiebreaker and won the division. It just can't be overstated. Losing three games was the nightmare scenario. It was the mm. thing that could not happen, because not only now have you lost the division, but now this is the path the Mets now have to take. Assuming that they make, and they will make the playoffs, so they'll be a wild card regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get the Padres now in the first round, which means you Darvish right off the bat, which means Juan Soto and Manny Machado and and, and all the, and everything else right off the bat. And if they win that series, their 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 reward is a best of five against the best team in baseball in the Los Angeles Dodgers. That is absolutely awful. As again compared to what the what the Braves will do, which is get the first week off to, for everyone to get healthy, which is also massive when you consider that Spencer Strider is still out with. Uh, the oblique strain he suffered, and I'm assuming Atlanta is, is hoping he'll be back in time for the division round, but obviously there's no guarantee there. But they would have been in a lot of trouble, I think, in the wild card round without him, uh, forced to use. Presumably they would have had a top three of Freed, Morton, and I assume Kyle Wright, which is fine, yeah. but certainly not. It Strider is obviously better to have there. And beyond that obviously that Atlanta will get to face either St. Louis who is a, a solid team but I don't think anyone's I don't think anyone's going to be pushing them as a as a World Series pick or a schizophrenic Phillies team that has spent the majority of this month just puking on itself over and over again and really should inspire no confidence in anyone going forward so about as bad an outcome as you could imagine for the Mets especially when you consider and I've seen a lot of Mets fans note this online Atlanta is built far better for the future than the Mets are. Like hmm. these, these teams are both very good in 2022. But I know that when the time comes to make 2023 picks, you know, assuming that neither team goes buck wild in the off season or does something crazy, I'll be picking Atlanta as the division winner yet again because the Mets are going to have some real roster issues they're going to be running up against. Uh, first and foremost, obviously, will be what they do about Jacob Degrom, who has an opt out in his contract. He is almost certainly going to exercise, but. Future also, Brave Atlanta. Future Atlanta Brave. Don't do this. The They've already suffered enough. Don't do this to them. What if that happens, though? What if he really did? 
I could see it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I could see it if they really wanted to make that expense, and they certainly can, given that they do have... Uh, and then, and what I was going to know, too, about Atlanta being better set for the future is because they have Acuna, Albies, Riley, Harris, Grissom. Like, they have all these guys either locked up for the future or who are just coming up and who are ready to be part of that future. Obviously, they have Striders, part of that as well. They have Max Freed, part of that as well. They're, gonna, they're bringing back Charlie Morton for another season to be, uh, at the very least, a useful league average arm at the back of their rotation. They clearly have figured something out with Kyle Wright. Their bullpen remains very, very strong. There's there's a lot that you're that there is to like about Atlanta going forward. Whereas with the Mets, your the concern has to be okay. This team is good, but they clearly need a catcher, and maybe that maybe they just throw Francisco Alvarez into that mix next season. But you know we'll see how that works out. Um, they're getting older all across the diamond for the most part. They have to figure out the the Degrom situation. The back of their rotation needs some needs some attention. They've really not received the best results from that group. Their bullpen, aside from Edwin Diaz, has been kind of a mess. And Diaz is heading to free agency, coming off one of the most dominant reliever seasons we've ever seen. So he's going to get paid by somebody. You know, there's a real chance that the Mets might have to run their payroll up to three hundred million dollars to bring this group back, and that's without really making any improvements. So this. If anything, this this NL East race, not not just for what it meant for the Mets for this season, but also for the future. It's like you could, and don't be surprised if a year from now we're looking back and saying the Mets missed their best shot at making the most of this roster, at least as it currently stands. Whereas Atlanta, again, the future is very bright and very open for them because of all the moves they made to lock up their young talent. Um, but like you noted, and and like we've been saying, this is not a Mets collapse. You know, this isn't something where you could just go same old Mets. The Braves just chase them down. They just straight up chased like them down. Um, I mean, just look at... I wasn't even trying to do that, actually. No, that but I mentioned it. But look at it this way. As you noted, 76-32 and 32 in their last 109 games. Mm. Uh, that works out to a 697 winning percentage, which over the course of a full season is a 113 <laughs> win pace. Yeah. There's just not a whole lot you can do about that. There's just nothing you can really do when the team behind you just will not stop. You know, mm. it's... It reminds me of in, like in Terminator 2, the T-1000 just relentlessly chasing you. <laughs> and just there's no way to destroy it unless you just drop it in a, in a big puddle of molten steel or whatever. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it really does say a lot about Atlanta and about how good a team they are. And like to me, again, it just says how utterly difficult this team is going to be to knock out of the postseason. Mm-hmm. You know, we have not had a repeat champion in going on 20 years now uh, since the Yankees last pulled it off in 99 and 2000 over 20 years now at this point Mm -hmm. i'm not going to bet on atlanta being the team that breaks that but there's a pretty good argument that this team going into the postseason now is better than the braves team that won the world series last year and not even not even and not anything i think it's not even an argument i think it's a pretty solid fact this is just Mm -hmm. a better braves team than the one we saw last year and that that has to be really scary to think about for the rest of the national league for the Dodgers, for whoever win, for whoever comes out of the American League, be it the Astros or the Yankees or Cleveland or whoever else, this Braves team is not going to go away quietly, and I would bet very, very hard that they are going to make it at least to the NLCS, if not further. For sure, but also, if you're not as good as the Braves have been over the last 100 games, guess what? The Braves were not a favorite going into the playoffs last year. They kind of just hung around and they were fine but no one really thought the Braves were going to win the World Series last year and they were not the best team in baseball but they got hot at the right time and I mean the best team in the AL did advance the World Series and the Astros but I think by and large this is going to be a pretty pretty competitive 
NL wild NL playoff run. I think the AL won't be as interesting, and maybe I'm wrong. I'd like to get your take on this, John. But I think I I, I mean I'll just to interject. I think the AL wild card round will be more interesting than the NL wild card round. I think Mets Padres will be the best series out of all of them. Yeah. But I, I can't really say Cardinals Phillies holds a tremendous amount of appeal of appeal for me. Did you and see uh, the Phillies? I, I really I really I really think too that um that if it ends up being Rays Jays, which I think we're currently trending mm-hmm. toward, that's gonna be a really, really fun series that I think will go the full three games. But if you were about to say, did I see that Michael K and A-Rod will be calling those Cardinals Phillies <laughs> games? Boy, way to make everyone have to watch those on mute. What a miserable experience that's going to be for those Can who I are also not. Mention for you, I, I don't know if you were watching any college football over the weekend. I, um, I was not. No. Okay, I'm sure you saw though the response from a lot of college football fans over the last couple days, um, because look, baseball they do things where they Rob Manfred, we have been harsh towards you on this very po- program. Just text us when you have an idea and you're just wondering how will the uh, sports renaissance man and the uh, awesome baseball knower, John Taylor, and other people like us feel about a move that you might make. Just text us. We'll give you the, we know we have the pulse here. So when you thought, hey, everyone in America and the folks over watching, uh, you know, uh, Arkansas, Alabama at 3.30 on CBS, do they want... uh, to just check in on what Aaron Judge was doing in his at bats, I promise you they don't care. I promise well, the, you they don't this, want to watch but it. This is this is I think ESPN routinely cutting to those Judge at bats. Oh I, I did see at least on college fo- on Twitter the college football folks I follow just continually, maybe not losing their mind, but at least highlighting the folks who were losing their mind mm-hmm. by saying, you know, I remember seeing Joel Anderson tweeting. He's a, you know, obviously a big TCU fan mm-hmm. as they were in the in the process of upsetting Oklahoma that, hey, this is not really the time for this. Like, <laughs> I want to watch my team beat Oklahoma. I do not mm-hmm. care if Aaron Judge breaks what is... And effectively, not even... not even a, a, an. It was one thing when McGuire was doing this, when Bonds mm-hmm. was doing this, because they were breaking the home run record. Mm-hmm. The record that, that Judge has tied and has yet to break is simply the American League record, which I don't really think anyone... I don't even know if people would be able to tell you that. Mm-hmm. And the franchise record, obviously. Um that Maris set back in 61. So it doesn't have, I think at a certain point too, like I imagine there will no longer be any cut-ins because 62 just really does not matter so much Mm -hmm. at this point. But it comes from the similar place though, that ESPN is contractually obligated to care about baseball in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Part of that obviously is a judge is and was, and I think probably continues to be the biggest news story in baseball currently and that because of that ESPN, you know, being ostensibly in their role as, you know, the sports news center of the universe, mm-hmm. you know, must check into that and be like, hey, it's happening. And obvious, and also this is probably getting big rating. I assume it was getting big ratings for them to, to be focusing on that. So they'll continue to focus on it. But similarly, they have to do this because MLB has put a lot of financial trust in ESPN to be part of its baseball broadcast wing. Obviously, mm-hmm. the fact that the playoff rights to this wild card round were sold before it even came into existence during the lockout, and that is a big part of that. And that's also why we're going to have to suffer through Michael Kay and Alex Rodriguez broadcasting a cardinals Phillies series of all the thing, because ESPN, prior to making this arrangement, was backing away from baseball pretty hard. You know, they had gotten rid of the midweek games. They had very clearly pared down um, 
their their or I should say they pared down their um the degree to which they were kind of hyping up Sunday night baseball, which had become more of an afterthought. Baseball tonight obviously has more or less disappeared from the ESPN landscape aside from uh, the half hour or so they air before Sunday night baseball. So this is the direct end result of that is that you have K calling these games because ESPN doesn't really have a baseball broadcast or uh, multiple baseball broadcast teams anymore. Mm-hmm. It really is just the Sunday night crew of Carl Ravitch and David Cohn and Eduardo Perez, who I assume will be handling... I, I, I haven't seen the other assignments for, for the rest of these games, but I assume will be handling a better series than that Cardinals-Phillies one. What frustrates me about this is I understand that MLB cannot simply take the local broadcasters for the Cardinals and Phillies and just throw them together in one booth and say, okay, you guys do it. For, for a million different reasons, that was never going to happen. Mm-hmm. But this is not... I, I don't understand how it ends up in a place where you have the guy who is the Yankees lead play-by-play announcer and someone who is, I I don't really know if I've ever heard anyone say Michael Kay is good at what he does. The best I've ever heard is he's fine. With mm-hmm. most people seeming to think the K, and I agree with this, is pretty bad at the job and is just doesn't, is just not a particularly good play-by-play guy. He's not particularly, he's not memorable in any kind of good way doesn't really seem to have his finger on the pole. He's more of a, honestly, at this point, given the given the radio show he hosts, it's probably fair to say Kay is more of just a hot take gen, like generalizer at this point than any kind of actual voice on baseball. And that's to say nothing of the brain-dead Alex Rodriguez who spends all of these broadcasts rambling on in disjointed sentences about nothing in particular. That pair is going to be an insufferable combination, especially when you consider that... Any Cardinals playoff series going forward is going to be one endless Albert Pujols, Yadi Molina, Adam Wainwright, just like pre-Hall of Fame speech after speech after speech. Speaking of, by the way, with that, why did they treat the weekend like this was goodbye for the big three? I mean, if if only because playoff series. Yeah, but I think I mean, I I understand that, though, for the fans who are going to be there. Regular season is is definitely one thing. And like not everyone can go to a playoff game. I, I, I completely get that. Um, and especially too for, you know, for the, not just for the fans who can't make it to playoff games, but also for the opposing teams and the opposing players and everyone involved in the process for all the, for all the folks who won't be a part of the, of the Cardinals postseason. Well, I guess just don't say the last home game for these three. That's fair. The the last home game. I kept saying last home game and I kept seeing that on Twitter and the way it was marketed. It's the last home game with these three. And I'm like, no, it's not. Well, but but that's also, but that's part of the machine that, that pumps in the, the, that gets into into play with this kind of stuff, which is we have to sell the the narrative at, that's that's at the heart of this. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we're we're way off whatever the original topic was, but like, <laughs> no, we're de- this is the Major League Baseball. Like this, the playoffs are here. Like we're bouncing around the Major League Baseball playoffs. That's now. fair. I I do just wonder because we were talking about the wild card series yes. or the wild card round, and you think that the NL is going to be a more uh, a more interesting watch. No, I, I meant the NL as a whole. I the think, NL as a whole. Okay. I think the NL is more open. Like, look, the Dodgers are world beaters, but we've seen this story for years now. Yes, they broke through once, but like we always go. It seems like a uh, tradition, unlike any other, uh, for the Dodgers is like, oh, who can who can stop the Dodgers this year? And then it's like, well, every single year except for one, they have been. They stopped have been stopped. Eventually. Yes, like that's that's what happens. It's baseball. Um, yeah, this this isn't exactly like this isn't like the Warriors going to the finals like every single year right. where everyone is like we literally do not know how to stop this team. The only mm-hmm. thing that stops them is just insanely devastating injuries to two of their three <laughs> best players. Right, and I mean you can make the case for literally every team outside of the Phillies winning the NL pennant. 
I think you could. I think you could even make a case for the Phillies. It, I mean, it's a tough one, but it yeah. it's if you wanted to make a case for the Phillies, it's one Aaron Nolan, Zach Wheeler, two uh, JT Almudo, Bryce Harper, right Reese Hoskins, Nick Castellanos. Even though he's been bad this season, uh, there's a core of a good offense there. Three, it's playoff baseball. Literally anything can happen. Mm-hmm. Like, do I think the Phillies have good odds? No, I'd say they probably have the worst odds of any team in this field. Um, with but the they exception. have good wild card odds. Like the the one thing is they're built for the three game series. Like I think with their so. Power I think so too. And they're pitching with Wheeler and Nola. Especially, yeah, especially because they will get to drop Wheeler and Nola games one and two. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the downside for them is they won't be playing at home unless they can force three games. Mm-hmm. Um, and St. Louis is no pushover in regards to any aspect. I mean, not a not a super team by any stretch, but a very solid one that um should at the very least like I I don't see the St. Louis team just rolling over and giving up. No. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I think, in my mind, I would... I And I think I, I tweeted something to this effect on on the other day after the Braves finished that sweep, but I would not be surprised if the AL... If the CSs we get are Yankees, Astros, and, Bra- and Braves, Dodgers, hmm. because in my mind, those have been, like, essentially wire to... In some, in some cases, wire to wire, but otherwise, for the better part of the season, the four best teams in baseball. Mm. And they're going to be favored. They're not only are they going to get all the four of those teams going to get the week or the first round off to rest and, and recuperate and everything. Not only are they going to have home field advantage uh, going forward in the divisional round, you know, not only are they just the best talent teams, but they've also all four of them have playoff experience, tons and tons of it for the most part. Um, obviously, you have the defending AL champions, the defending World Series champions, the Dodgers team that's been in the playoffs every year since the dawn of time a Yankees team that has struggled in the playoffs but still obviously has a lot of good things going for them and seems to be getting somewhat healthier at the right time and somewhat more productive and, and somewhat closer to what I think the best version of that roster would be. And I do think, and I'm, I'd be curious to see how this plays out through the wild card round, because as as it was in the old playoff system, they're going to get teams that they're going to get to face teams at a disadvantage. They're going to get they're going to get to face teams that have had to use their one and two starters already that have had to work their bullpens hard that are not going to get that. They're going to get barely a breather between the end of the regular season and the start of the postseason. that are going to have to go pretty much straight into the divisional round because MLB is trying to cram as many playoff games as it can into a short period of time because of the fact that the lockout cost us the opening week of the season. It's really hard not to think that with their roster and structural advantages that those four teams will not be the last one standing because we've just seen it over and over the season. And I think uh, the reason I tweeted it when I did was because the Braves proved it in that sweep against the Mets. They're one of the best teams in baseball. And it really is them, the Astros, the Yankees, and the Dodgers. Those are far and away the four best teams in baseball. I don't really think there's any other claim any other team can make. That's fair. Um, John. Yes. The Tigers. To go in entirely this. the opposite direction. <laughs> well, you know, they're playing uh, okay. 10-3 and three, uh, as of yesterday, I want to say. So I'm not sure uh, what they – did the Tigers win yesterday? Um, I don't know. I mean, look, man, you're you're asking a lot to, to, <laughs> to ask me to pay attention to the 2022 Detroit Tigers at any point past, like, mid-April. Like, once it became clear around, like, the end of April that this team wasn't going to be any good – that was pretty much the point at which I checked out on Tigers baseball and nothing that's happened in the five months since has made me think that that was a mistake. However, However, Scott Harris was hired and Scott Harris, if you read around what people think of him in baseball, former, former giants. Yeah. Giants yeah. front office dude. Very, very different than Alavila. Uh, yes. It looks like, which yes. we have said for 
several years now on this show. Like a, like a really long time. <laughs> and it happened, and we haven't talked about it, and I wanted to get your perspective. Now that it, the Tigers shifting gears a little bit here, I mean, 10-3, and three, uh, last 13, Scott Harris, been a breath of fresh air in Detroit. I'm more interested in what Detroit does this winter with the Scott Harris hire because I think they could have gone a lot of different ways and they could have Chicago White Soxed it and they did not. And I think there is reason for optimism because like, what have we said? They've drafted well. They have talent. They just don't develop anybody. No, and there, you, there have been very bad at talent development. And I think right. that's, and maybe well, that, that's going to be that the biggest a little issue. bit. Well, I think there, there are two huge issues when it comes to the Tigers going forward. The first is like you said, talent development. They have struggled badly to turn all of the top picks and prospects they've, they've come up with uh, into useful starting pitchers. And to a certain degree, you know, some of it's unlucky. Casey Mize blowing out his arm is not something you can really, you know, plan or predict, plan mm-hmm. for or predict. But at the same time, uh, Matt Manning has struggled. Uh, Alex Fado has struggled. Uh, Sven Torkelson has struggled. Riley Green has struggled. Like, they have just not been able to unlock whatever it is that they, you know, or what it is that made these guys top prospects and turn them into regular Major League players. Some of that, too, is just Major League Baseball is really hard, and you get these guys need an appropriate length runway for them to, you know, take off. But it just has not happened for the Tigers, and it's not just those top prospects. They really have struggled badly to produce anything in the way of, of useful players on any level uh, from within. I mean, you look at the guys who are leading this team or who who've led this team in wins above replacement this season. It's here. Here is something just that'll that'll make you weep. Javi mm. Baez leads the Tigers in wins above replacement, and he's not even at three WAR. Like that that alone says so much about what about what has happened to this team. I mean, I should. That's I mean, just really hard to do. That's really hard to do. I mean, something I forgot to mention: Tariq Skubal in that list of young players, but also he's he's hurt right now anyway. But you also mm-hmm. look at guys like you know they've had some mild successes in guys like Eric Haas, or um, honestly, that might be it. Like that, <laughs> I, I, just, I was I was ready to go a little further, but then you look: Jaime Candelario has simply not has simply not turned into a productive hitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Akil Badu coming off that great rookie season was more or less buried in AAA and has not figured it out since. You know, guys like Victor Reyes or Harold Castro or Willie Castro, those look more like reserves or, you know, backup players than they do any kind of potential starter. Like, the guys they have called up from the minors have not really done it. The trades they've made, uh, Isaac per- or sending Isaac Paredes out for Austin Meadows has already been a disaster, and that's with the fact, and that's not even including the fact that Meadows is only under contract for, I believe, another season or two. They have made they made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of failures in the Al Avila era. And I think by that by that factor, Harris can't help but be an improvement on that, simply mm-hmm. because I think, like you said, he's going to bring a different look to this team that hopefully will be more analytically focused, that'll be better about player development, that'll be better about um, just I imagine there is going to be a wholesale overhaul of this front office over the next few seasons. The flip side, or the other side of it, the other thing that's going to really make a difference as to where the Tigers go is money. And that's Mm -hmm. something we've talked about with the transfer of ownership from Mike Illich to his son, Chris, and how it seems like the younger Illich is really not as interested in the, in running and maintaining a team the way that the older Illich was. Which I'm surprised by. The the track record with nepotism transitions (laughs) of power has just been... It's, it's so sterling. Like, it's, it's bizarre to think that this, that this son who is in no way, shape or form qualified to own a major league baseball team, but was given one anyway, 
just is not actually qualified to run a major league baseball team the way it should be run. Or maybe it goes I don't know. What we maybe watch on Succession every year, like it goes against, which is another just uh, a clean transition of power. Yeah, or or, or House or House of the Dragon. I mean, I guess at least the Tigers have less incest happening than that one, but. Where are the Starks well, when you need them? The Starks were really the only good transition to power here. Ned understood it. Rob, like it was, and we wiped them out. We Spoilers. wiped it all out. But that is going to be a part of it too, is how much does Chris Illich want to spend on this roster going forward? If it seems like he's already not particularly interested in running the Detroit Tigers, and certainly doesn't seem like he's interested in running it the same way that Mike Illich did, which was, which is to say, take all of the money. I just want a championship before I die. Mm-hmm it's hard to see how Detroit is going to kind of pull itself back up toward the top of any kind the division, much less the rest of the league without that combination of good scouting and spending money. Like you can scout super well and do all the right things in that direction, but you still need to make the moves in free agency that work for you. And it obviously doesn't help that the two major moves the Tigers made in free agency last off season in Baez and in Eddie Rodriguez really have not panned out for much of anything at all. So I don't really expect to see the Tigers. I, I think the Tigers will once again be something close to a 90 to 100 loss team next season. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to do really anything noteworthy in the offseason. If I'm wrong, I, I would love to see it. I would like to see, you know, it'd be nice to see that core of talent actually step forward and do what it's supposed to do. But I have to think that the next year or two in Detroit is probably going to be focused on re overhauling the front office, overhauling scouting, overhauling player development, like kind of restocking the farm doing better in that capacity and trying to figure out if they can create, if they can build that young core before they then start adding on to it. I think if anything, what it looks like last off season was probably premature in that regard, but mm. it also feels like last off season just wasn't very smartly done in the, on the part of Detroit. You know, they, they made signings. I think that people were mostly cautiously optimistic about in Rodriguez and Baez, but certainly didn't work. And then pretty much just stopped there, which, I think also doomed them to this place where they needed to go, you know, 10 and three in their last 13 in their last 13 games to avoid a hundred loss season. And it should also be noted before not to pick on the Tigers necessarily, but like that 10 and three has come against uh, Baltimore, which granted has been a much better team this year, but is, is going to miss the playoffs and seems to have run out of steam in September. It seemed to seem to run out of steam in September going into October, uh, a white Sox team that had nothing left to play for a Royals team with nothing left to play for a Twins team that just doesn't have bodies left, and now finishing up with four games against Seattle, which at this point is playing purely for positioning in the wildcard round, which still counts for something, but obviously they are not facing the best of the best right now. And I feel like this, well, I guess it's, it's better than previous Septembers in Detroit where they would go like 3-20 and 20 and just completely fall to pieces. But I, I don't know if I necessarily see this as a sign that there's some, and I'm not saying you, I'm not saying you suggest it as such, but... I don't see this as a sign of some impending turnaround in Detroit, and I don't really know how much you can take from these last two weeks. I think the more important thing is going to be what they do this offseason, who they choose to target, what they end up doing, who they hire. I have to imagine, too, that uh, part of Harris coming on is this, this is probably the end for A.J. Hinch, too, I would imagine. Another hire that really has just not panned out. Um, I mean, I, I, it's hard to say I exactly. I, I don't like know. He... I mean, it, it depends on what, they, on what the new front office season Hinch. But if the if the expectation was this is a guy who can coach up our young players and bring a, a you know a championship winning mindset or whatever the particular phrasing is, it's really hard to argue that he's done that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not. I guess there's so much that that a manager is judged and based on that we don't see as fans. But at least from what we do see as fans, I'm having a hard time seeing what it is about Hinch 
that suggests he should come on, he should be brought back, especially too, just given the the propensity too of new front offices to want to bring in a new managerial core that you know someone that they can work with, someone that they share uh, a mindset and a vision with. Which is not to say Hinch isn't uh, aligned with that, but that I wouldn't be surprised if he also goes as part of the the overhaul that's coming in Detroit. I like it. Um, where should we go next? Let's hit uh, this. The Cubs, who you love, Cubs. big Cubs guy. Mm-hmm. They're ending the season hot. You mentioned uh, their series with the Mets, but like the Cubs, there's a little bit of reason for optimism uh, the way I they're ending the season, right? I think there's more optimism than there would be for a team like Detroit. I mean, yeah. just looking at the, the, the again at the schedule, and I, I I don't want to place too much again into September. Future Cub uh, Carlos Correa, by of the course. way, based on those comments, <laughs> by the way, hilarious. Like that man is gone. I don't know if uh, Twins fans have, are holding out any hope that Carlos Correa might return. Uh, I don't. I mean, I I could see it either way, but I wouldn't be surprised if he at the very least uh, opts out to try again. There's no reason not to. This it's, is what he said. Do you know what he, like, on such I, I mean, I haven't seen the specific comments you're talking about. Well, I have the quote for you. Okay, fantastic. I go to the Dior store. Never been. I don't know if you've been there. Never, Never been, been to, to a Dior, Dior store. store. No. When I want something, I get it. I'm the product here. If they want my product, they've just got to come get it. Okay. Um, is that Marlo Stansfield or is that uh, <laughs> Carlos Correa? That could be a fun game. <laughs> when I want the product, when they want the product, they come and that's a really good line for starters. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> that just strikes me as uh, not a twins thing to do. I, no, I mean, thought... it's it's very much not Minnesota. It's very right. much against the ethos of Minnesota, mm-hmm. but in that it's not passive aggressive sniping. But that is some full on the Yankees, the Mets, the big but, the big markets love that kind of thing. That's I mean, I guess just to Minnesota briefly on Correa, like I I can see him at least wanting to go to a more surefire contender. I think mm. the question is what who is that surefire contender that's willing to give him the well, money? Well, is there a path to the Cubs jumping into the NL Central I, contention see, I don't, next year? I don't see that because I don't think this Cubs team is going to be in that kind of race next year. Hmm. I mean, I don't think the NL, the NL Central is not the NL West or the NL East or the AL East where it's just mm-hmm. like it's it's you know it's either got a huge juggernaut team on top of it or it's got a ton of competition within it. The NL Central is very much grab the team that is the hardest. You know, the, the Cardinals won it by virtue of being a good team, but also by virtue of the fact that pretty much everyone else stopped trying, the Brewers included. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the way the Cubs are, and for what it's worth, they have been good in the second half. They're combined 17 and 12, or sorry, yeah, 17 and 12 since the start of September. They've been above 500 since the start of August, uh, or just in, in that span. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at what that, but you look at what that team has roster-wise, and I'm not I don't think we're really seeing the pieces that need to be there for the Cubs to be actual genuine contenders yet. Mm-hmm. You look at the fact that their best offensive player is Wilson Contreras, and he's a free agent this offseason, and I really doubt Chicago is going to bring him back unless he gives them a hometown discount. Uh, second best player is Ian Happ, who has one more year one more year of team control left, and then will be a free agent himself as well. Obviously, they've got Seiya Suzuki signed long-term. They've got some young pieces up who uh, showed some very, who really did show some genuine. I think that we saw a lot of improvement out of Nico Horner. I mm-hmm. think Christopher Morrell had a very nice debut and is certainly, I think, a, a piece uh, going forward. I think Suzuki had very good flashes in between injury. Franmil Reyes has not been great, but he's still somehow only 26 years old. I think there's a, obviously a lot. There's of, no way that's right. It's. I saw that number and I was like, that has to be wrong. When but did no, he he's only 19? 26 years old. Something close to that. The Padres yeah. call him up very young. 
Um, they have Nick Madrigal still, who has spent most of the year injured, but uh, is obviously still still there and still a part of that potential core. They have he some was bad, other... though, when he was on the field. He was bad. I mean, the, the jury is not necessarily out on Madrigal, but I, it, it's also not returning very... It's not as if have a very good return yet. So, mm-hmm. obviously, up in the air. But, but that's, I think, kind of pointing to what I'm saying. I think you can see the same thing pitching-wise, where Justin Steele and Keegan Thompson... And in particular, uh, Hayden Wesniewski, who's been fantastic since he since he the acquired, since he was acquired from the Yankees for Scott Efros, you've seen real flashes from them that there is actually a functional core kind of coming together in Chicago. But I also wouldn't say it's just there yet because there is still a lot of holes on this team. This team right now is starting someone named Alfonso Rivas at first base. Hmm. I've I'd literally never heard of him until I looked at the Cubs baseball reference page about half an hour ago. Just never ever heard of him. Yeah. You know, similarly, guys like P.J. Higgins, Nelson Velasquez, Zach McKinstry, David Bodie, Esteban Kiraz, like the the departed Clint Frazier, like Patrick Wisdom, who's already 30. Like, the, I don't really see the core of a contending team with those guys. Hmm. And then on top of that, you look at where their prospect core is. Their top prospect, Brennan Davis, missed almost the entire season with a back injury. So his 2022 was a wash. Pete Crow Armstrong is flying up the prospect list, but uh, is still only at advanced A-ball. Similarly, Kevin Alcantara, one of their big acquisitions uh, from the Yankees as part of the, I believe, Anthony Rizzo trade, Mm -hmm. uh, who's number three in their system according to our rankings, still just an A-ball, still only 20 years old. And and again, that's worth noting. Crow Armstrong is 20. Alcantara is 20. Christian Hernandez, who's number four on our list, is 18. Owen Casey, who is number five on their list, is is number 50. He was picked in the 2020 draft. Uh, their top pick in the 2022 draft, Cade Horton out of Oklahoma, pitched only 53 innings in college because of injury. You know, mm. I don't really know that the pieces are there for the 2023 Cubs. I think, I think what, what's more likely is than, than the 2023 Cubs being like a player for Carlos Correa and actually getting themselves into the race is something more along the lines of, they take 2023, they let the prospects keep developing, they see what they've got with the young guys in Suzuki and Morrell and Horner and whatnot. Maybe at the deadline, if they're out of it again, they can move Hap for some more prospect capital. And then looking toward that offseason, I mean, you look at this offseason for the for the Cubs, they're going to shed the money that they owe to Contreras. Uh, Wade Miley will also come off the books, so probably be a few non-tenders. Jason Hayward will no longer be around. He's still owed $22 million next season that I can't imagine the Cubs are going to get out of. But then his contract is finally mercifully over after that season. Similarly, uh, that'll be the end of Kyle Hendricks's contract. That'll be the end of Marcus Stroman's contract, unless uh, he exercises a player option for $21 million, which, I mean, if he does, that's not the worst thing in the world to happen. But regardless, a lot of money should open up for the Cubs after the 2023 season. And while I know it's kind of a a fool's game to say, oh, well, that's when the Cubs are going to spend again, considering they haven't spent in going on five years at this point. Yeah. I think you can make the argument that that's going to be when that window kind of reopens for them, for them to mm. say, okay, the prospects are here or will be here soon. Uh, the young guys who are already here are still producing. Hopefully if they are producing, we're going to shed a ton of money to declining expensive veterans. We're going to have the the space finally to add some guys who are young and, and, and productive so I would not be surprised if, if this offseason in Chicago is a quiet one. They let Contreras walk. Maybe they work out a trade or two. They bring in some more young pieces or, or some maybe cheaper veterans to kind of fill some spots again. But I think there are too many holes on this roster for them to be, that partic- to be I think, true contenders next season. I mean, look at the rotation, the bullpen in particular. Both were very, very tough this season. 
I think it's more likely that the 2024 Cubs and beyond are, are the ones to give actual optimism to folks in Chicago again. Interesting. I like it. Um, your, well, we'll do this real quick. Uh, John, yes. just because I don't want to upset you. It's a Tuesday night. Um, it's, it's a rainy day already. I don't want to add to your, to your uh, gloomy uh, Tuesday Difficult. evening in New York City. Jeez. Tony LaRusso is retiring. Uh, it's over. Um, we'll How's see that if Miguel Cairo is the guy. What what more can we say? Uh, your two minutes are in uh, on Tony LaRusso officially, 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 officially being done with Major League Baseball. R.I.P. Bozo. Like I don't know. Like we. <laughs> there, I I mean. It's very funny to me that when the story came out that LaRusso was done, penned by Bob Nightingale of USA Today, mm-hmm. that it contained the idea that like that the 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 LaRusso hire was something that was undone by his poor health and by bad luck essentially, and that it was supposed to be the storybook chapter. And it's like nobody wanted this. The only person who wanted Tony LaRusso in charge of the White Sox was Jerry Reinsdorf. That's the only reason this happened. Everyone else, I we were saying it. Uh, Plenty of other people around baseball were saying it and have been saying it, that this was a mistake. Mm. That it was going to be a mistake to put Tony La Russa, an ancient drunk who doesn't understand modern baseball, in charge of a fun, young, uh, particularly like minority team. And it was. It cost the White Sox two years of their window. And while you can argue, okay, well, they made the playoffs in 2021. One, how did that end up going? Two... Well, there is no number two. Just how did that end up going? They didn't win a championship. What did a damn matter? And then they went out and completely crapped the bed this season. How's it going? Yes. And look, the problems I think we've said over and over again, the problems in Chicago are bigger than than Tony LaRusso and whatever he did. I've long been of the opinion that I think Rick Hahn is not the guy for this franchise anymore. I think his, you can't, I don't really know that you can argue that his moves have made this team on the whole better. Um, I think they've made I think they've made this team sporadically better, but I also think it cost a lot of time to get to that point. And Chicago is still in the same place where the roster is really thin. Like, where would this team have been without Johnny Cueto? Think about that. They where signed Johnny of Cueto off the Johnny street Cueto, in May. That is true. We all love Johnny Cueto. All my homies love Johnny Cueto. But <laughs> think of how bad this team would have been without signing 36-year-old, 37-year-old, however old Johnny Cueto is, free agent Johnny Cueto off the street during the season. Similarly, where'd they be without Josh Harrison, another guy who really should not be counted on to provide a lot, but somehow has like, and you can point to a very variety of things like, oh, bad luck with injuries, bad luck with performance. No, but this is, this is the roster that the White Sox have and fixing it is going to take more than a new manager who is not Tony LaRusso. As for LaRusso himself, whatever, like he never should have come back out of retirement in the first place. He will go back into retirement to go back to being a surly drunk who doesn't like anyone and who gets called by the older writers around the league to give some grumpy quote about how analytics or something. So whatever, he will not be missed. I don't particularly care that he's gone. I've never been a, I've never been a fan of his in the first place. If you can't tell, mm-hmm. um, I can't think, but I can't help but think this will only be a positive for Chicago, especially again, given some of the quotes that were coming out while LaRusso was out from the players that basically said all but said, yeah, he's a dick and we don't like him. But at the same time, there are bigger, like I said, there are bigger problems in Chicago than him. And I think this is a team that needs a far more uh, thorough approach to change. Like they just need, I think they need a far bigger change. And I think it has to start with Rick Hahn and I think it has to start at the top. Ideally, it would start with Jerry Reinsdorf, but I don't necessarily know that that's going to happen. Hold your breath so, on that one. I, I'm sure White Sox fans were hoping that Jerry Reinsdorf will hold his breath until there aren't any left. But 
Yeah, we're getting dark here. We're getting dark about the Chicago White Sox, a team that is massively disappointing and gave me a headache for most of the year. <laughs> That's me, just a full-on blizzard here. I thought that was your Darth Vader for a second there. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, John, we'll end on this. A happy note. Your NL and AL MVP. You got to do it Tuesday night. Who is your NL and AL MVP? I mean, I guess... I mean, it's, it's just tough. It really, really is tough. I guess we'll start with the NL because I think I feel a little better there um, about just saying... I mean, it's funny because for as much as we, as much as much all the debate has been on the AL side of things about Judge versus Otani, and here's where I'd like to know, too, that Aaron Judge's wins above replacement on fan graphs is 11.4, which is just nonsense to think about. Uh, by fan graphs war, the following three players are tied for the National League lead in war. Mm -hmm. Nolan Arenado, Manny Machado, and Paul Goldschmidt. With Freddie Freeman 0.2 war behind, uh, and Francisco Lindor We should mention Freddie Freeman's had a better year than he did in Atlanta. Like, this is maybe his best season ever. It's which is wild to think about that even despite that he will not I don't think he'll even finish in the top three yeah. of the MVP voting. I think the top three will be Arenado, Machado, and Goldschmidt in some order. Twist he my does arm this in Atlanta. I wonder if he's like the favorite this year. Possibly. Twist my arm, pull my leg. I am probably gonna go with Goldschmidt. Mm -hmm. I think Machado They might clean up. Marmel might win manager of the year. You might get Goldschmidt MVP. I think Pujols obviously will win comeback player of yeah. the year, which is kind of an insult to him in the first place. But, <laughs> <laughs> That's um, the dumbest award, though, in sports is comeback. No one knows how to define no one knows it. How, they no make up the rules every no year. One, like, what is yeah. comeback? He was just injured last year. That's not comeback of the year. He was just injured. What does that I, even mean? <laughs> or he was just I, bad last year, so then he was just like, <laughs> what does that mean? Or he was young, and he just, it really took some time for him to become the player. Like, no it's one very has, silly. It, it's, it's very the silly. It's silliest award. I think... I think Goldschmidt has the shinier numbers than Machado does. He has the better triple slash, the higher weighted on base average, the highest, the higher weighted runs created, one, runs, weighted runs created plus. Mm. Wow, that's a real tongue twister. That's tough. Arenado obviously has him on the defensive end of things, but I, I really don't think MVP voters, voters care that much about defense unless it's an obvious like, f like five tool superstar. Mm -hmm. So I think I think Goldschmidt's probably going to walk away with that one. I wouldn't, I mean, any of those three guys of Arenado, Machado, or Goldschmidt winning is fine by me. I, I truly, you know, they're both, they're all excellent players. I just think it's going to be Goldschmidt in the end, especially when you count the fact, too, that he's a guy I think last year a lot of people started to wonder, ooh, is Paul Goldschmidt, like, is he done? Like, is he reaching the end? Nope, he is just fine. This may be the last, like, really good season of Paul Goldschmidt's career, but I think it's MVP worthy regardless. AL, I mean, look, it. The AL, the NL MVP vote feels to me like a, you're, you're essentially you're splitting hairs numerically. Mm -hmm. The AL MVP vote is a purely philosophical one at this point. Hmm. And that said, like it is, it is a philosophical argument of which is more valuable overall: a guy having one of the single greatest offensive seasons the league has ever seen, or a dude who is on both sides of the ball like a top ten player. I, I genuinely don't know how you answer that. I don't know if I have an answer for that myself. Man, this goes back to like it's funny that the Angels can't get away from this. The trout. No, Miguel this Cabrera is yeah. This debate. is this is, this is all, the spiritual. Uh, this is the yeah. spiritual successor of the Miguel Cabrera Mike Trout debates. And I think unfortunately for the Angels, it's going to end the same way, which is I think Judge is going to win the MVP. I don't think there's a doubt Judge is winning. I just no. Think I, I don't think so either. I don't think I think if he'd finished with like 50 home runs, yes, maybe Otani can sneak in. But I think. 
the narrative the, is just too strong. The narrative homers, of 61 just, homers, yeah. the narrative of potentially winning the triple crown. He'll win at yep. least two of the three categories and is, has an outside chance of winning the third. The narrative of, again, the if Angels you want to use... The Angels still suck. There are the still some are still riders terrible. who are... Yeah. Yeah, the Angels are still, still terrible, whereas the Yankees have won the division and are going to go to the playoffs. And on top of everything else, the narrative of him doing this in a contract year after turning down an extension, betting on himself and coming away with, again, one of the te- like 20 best offensive seasons we have ever seen in all of Major League history. Like, unfortunately for Otani, I just don't think... I just don't think what he did is enough, which is insane to think about. He was literally one of the 15 best pitchers in baseball and one of the, like, 25 best hitters in baseball at the same time, but that's not going to be enough. And ultimately, I don't know that I really have a problem with that. I think in order to defeat a guy like Otani, similarly, in order to defeat Trout in his prime, you needed to put together a season that was historically undeniably great, like something that people will be talking about for years to come. And I think Judge did that. Again, an 11-win season. That doesn't happen. That's Trout territory. That's Trout in his prime territory. That's that's ultra-freak Barry Bonds territory. I don't even know if Bonds got that high because his defense was too bad. Mm. Like, Judge is a total package. He He's going to set, he's gonna if not set a record, at least going to make history. I, if I had a vote, I would give it to Judge, and I don't think it's going to be a particularly close vote ultimately anyway. I think Judge is going to win in a landslide. I would agree. John Taylor, always a pleasure, my friend. Find you on yes. Twitter at J.A. Taylor. Go subscribe to Fangraphs.com, especially right now with the season wrapping up here with all kinds of great playoff coverage and a whole new group of uh, talented writers to join forces with the already talented group of Major League Baseball writers right there. So subscribe today, Fangraphs.com. Do it. Playoff yes. baseball. It's come, here. Come join us. We're, all our playoff preview stuff is going to start rolling out in the next few days. Well, staff predictions, uh, zips playoff odds, power rankings, uh, series previews. Uh, and then throughout the playoffs, too, we'll be running uh, game, live chats during our games. Uh, I'll be running the Twitter account, so I'll be you know keeping folks updated with all the cool Fangraph stuff. We'll have coverage of every game as it happens. So, yeah, like Chase said, come subscribe to Fangraphs. Come join us for the single most fun month of the year october it's here it's finally here i'm happy for you that you get to spend this first round not having a minor coronary incident every mm-hmm. time a new braves reliever comes in yeah that you could just watch a, a bunch of other teams beat up on each other and just sit there kind of rubbing your hands together but <laughs> uh-huh. it's it's going to be a lot of fun regardless i'm really excited about about just getting to this point of the season again let's go playoffs let's go baseball let let let's go let's go mlb there you go John Taylor, I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. All right, we're back here on the Chase Most Podcast as the Wednesday edition of the program continues on. I got a first timer over here down back in my home state. Friday Night Lights in full bloom. It's amazing that we're over halfway done with the uh, high school season already. But a first-timer, like I said, of the dominant Lee County Trojans, Coach Dean Fabrizio is here. Dean, good evening, sir. How are you? Good, Chase. Thanks for having me on. I've heard a lot of great things about your podcast. Big fan. Well, I appreciate you doing this. I mean, uh, Coach, who was on your schedule already this year, uh, the Colquitt County, Mr. Uh, Sean Calhoun from my area back in Gwinnett. I went to Parkview in the interest of full disclosure, so the rivalry over there. Uh, I have a lot of 
a lot of great memories of all that, but also just South Georgia football. I love the talent pipeline and what uh, just the NFHS network is a godsend for me being away so I can go and watch tape uh, when I need to. And just all of that being available is super cool. So I'm glad I'm able to do that because I, I love watching uh, y'all's region and the, the style of football that y'all are playing down there. I want to start, though, Coach. Last two games, over 100 points scored by your team. Uh, how would you best characterize the reason as to why this offense has been able to put up over 100 points in, in, two, in your last two contests? Well, yeah, first, we've got some really good players. You know, when you've got mm. a running back like Usmani Kramas, one of the top sophomore running backs in the country, been offered by Alabama, Georgia, and so forth. You know, you've, you've got, a good, uh, got a good starting point there. Mm. Uh, our offensive coordinator, uh, Jonathan Thompson does a fina- uh, fina- <laughs> sorry does a phenomenal job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Flath, our line coach, and all our offensive coaches just do a great job. And you know our kids have done a good job executing the last two games, and hopefully they can keep that up as the season goes on. Um, what did you learn about your team? So you only have one loss on the season. It was to the Colquitt Packers, who are having a big time year. Not in your region. It's not region play. What did you learn about your team, and what did you learn about just where your program is at this year uh, when you played the Packers? Well, you know, we, we try to play a tough non-region schedule. Uh, part of mm-hmm. that is we can't find people to play us, but part of that is to, to prepare us for uh, region play and the playoffs. You know, we scrimmaged uh, Car- Carver-Columbus coming off a state finals appearance, open mm-hmm. with Warner Robins, two-time defending state champions. So like every year, you know, we, we play a tough non-region schedule, and we do that to find out about our team, to see what adjustments we have to make, and also because it makes us better. Playing good people makes you better. Uh, there's when you play a team like Colquitt, you know the mistakes uh, get get exposed, mm-hmm. and you don't get a false sense of security. And we made some adjustments after that game, but also it kind of let some of our players know, hey, we've got to be more on point with some things. So we knew that game would make us a better team, and uh, it certainly did. What do you, what changes when you're, because I mean, the region play, everything comes down to region and just seeding and the playoffs and things like that. But what are you able to experiment in a game like Colquitt? What were you able to throw in there? Is that like a summer install where you're like, we're going to try some stuff against Colquitt? No, there's definitely no experimenting in that game. Mm-hmm. What it does is, you know, maybe in some other games, you're able to get away with some things and not playing quite as fast, maybe being mm-hmm. a little, not reading your keys as fast. And even though you go over those things with the kids, they're able to get away with it sometimes in, in games. But when you play a team with the talent level and coaching the Colquitt has, you do those same things and you're not able to get away, away with it. So that was, I think, the biggest thing is it, is it shows those kids, hey, look, this is what we've been on you about. And, you know, sometimes if it doesn't hurt you, it, it's hard to get that point across to the kids. But in that game, you know, those little detail things that maybe you can get away with versus other competition, you can't get away with versus Colquitt. And it really makes you tighten up as a, as a team. What would you say if I polled every coach that's played uh, the Trojans this year and I was like, hey, what's the most annoying part about uh, playing Coach Fabrizio's team this year? What do you think they would say? Well, I think the physicality we play with. Hmm. We're a very physical football team on both sides of the ball. Uh, you know, we pride ourselves on that. And I think when you play us, just the physicality that you've got to go against is, is, is what we're known for. I like it. Um, with the run game, you mentioned uh, it helps having a, a, a big time back. Um, but how does that just inform your decision-making year over year? Because, I mean, I'm always curious, how much have you just kind of evolved or kind of adapted to just having a star running back uh, at your school? Have you adapted in a major way with schematic changes? How has it benefited or maybe just kind of dictated which way you were going there as the lights go out? Hey, it's October. It's Halloween season. That's where we're at. 
what we try to do offensively is we try to have a scheme that, that you can adapt to different things. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so that way there's continuity from year to year where our kids, you know, from one year to the next, there's carryover. But mm-hmm. by the same token, we want to have one that you can really emphasize different different facets. You know, 2019, mm-hmm. we had a quarterback, Kyle Tool, who was a Division One quarterback, had uh, some really good receivers. And we threw it around quite a bit. You know, if you go to 2020, uh, we had an injury to our starting quarterback, Chauncey Magwood, who's now playing wide receiver at Kentucky. We have to move to quarterback. We have an elite running back in Juju McDowell's at South Carolina. We, we were really more of a run-based team and ran the quarterback. And then, you know, we've kind of adapted some. You know, an interesting thing the other night, you know, in, in our first region game, a matchup with two top ten teams, you know, our, our sophomore quarterback, Weston Ryan, made his first start. Uh, Weston's a big kid, six foot three, two hundred fifteen pounds, and he's kind of got a little bit of dual threat to him. And uh, mm-hmm. we're able to kind of open us up, being able to do some things we haven't been able to do um, in the in the past year or so. And and so uh, yeah, that's the thing we've got to adapt to the talent that we've got. You know, we've got a really good receiver on the outside, J D. Ferguson. Um, so you know, you just you adapt to the talent you have, but you got to still got to stay within your scheme. So there's that carryover year to year. I like it. Um... The biggest surprise through six games about your team is what? I think, the, like I just said, the quarterback. The fact that mm. you know we've, we've got a kid that started the year as our JV quarterback and has just really improved, and uh, for him to open up for a top ten team in six A and throw for you know one hundred and seventy yards and add another fifty or so yards rushing, really impressive. And so uh, you know I think the quarterback play of our, our sophomore quarterback is really probably the biggest surprise this year. Where do you think when you look at reads for him? Is he where is he at in the process here? Do you trust him multi reads? Are we at one read quarterback yet? How much are you opening it up for him? At this We're point? giving him a little bit, but you know he's a 4.0 plus student, so he's able mm-hmm. to handle a lot and really kind of soaks everything in. So we're 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 kind of fast pacing his learning here and putting things in and what we're allowing him to do. Um, but you know he's he's a really good kid. Like I said, our our offensive coaches do a phenomenal job of of adapting to the personnel we have within our scheme. And our offensive line is really good this year, and so so it's something that uh, uh, we've been able to we've been able to adapt this scheme around what we've got, and that's uh, that's something that each and every year is is unique about high school football is adjusting your scheme to, to suit the talent base that you have and get the most out of them. What have you found is easier to teach for your offensive line? You mentioned it's been a strength for you guys. What has been easier, zone or man, a man zone blocking scheme? Zone or gap blocking scheme? Well, yeah. we actually do both, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, our offensive line coaches, John Flaff and Ricard, do a phenomenal job. And, uh, you know, I'm always kind of on them about are we doing too much, are we doing too much? But mm-hmm. uh, they, they do a good job of kind of merging those things where there's a lot of carryover between the two. Um, so that's something that uh, we, we kind of do a lot, a lot of both. Some people exclusively zone or exclusively gap, and we, mm-hmm. we do both. And you know what's unique about Is that this? harder? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I don't I don't necessarily think so. Our line coach doesn't seem to think it is. Uh, mm-hmm. There's certainly a lot of positives to it. Um, but you know, we've been able to do we've been able to mix and match and do both of them. But like I said, the way he teaches it, there's a lot of carryover between the two between the two. So it mm-hmm. does not seem like it's too much. And you talked about what's unique about teams. You know, every year, I think it's my 14th year here, and probably for the last 10 years, we've had 12 or more senior starters. That's just the nature mm. of our program with the amount of kids we have. Now, we play a lot of kids. A lot of kids rotate in, but usually about 12 or more. This year, we're only starting about uh, five seniors, which is really unusual. We have a few mm. more that rotate in and get playing time. So it's one of the youngest teams we've had in a long time, uh, just for, for various reasons, but still a very good football team. 
What have you found most defenses have thrown at you to kind of limit the physicality and what y'all do uh, offensively? What what scheme have they thrown at you the most? Have you seen mostly cover cover one? Has it been single high? Like, what have they thrown? A lot of press man or is it a lot of zone? We see a variety of things. You yeah. know, it varies from week to week. Uh, mm. You know, obviously when you when you have a running back like Usmani, it, it's hard not to have enough guys in the box. Uh, yeah. You've got a receiver out there like we do in J.D. Ferguson. Uh, you know, they've got a, it's hard to cover him one on ones. So that creates mm. a problem for the defense, and it comes down to us executing and uh, and adapting to what they do to us. I like it. Um, this week's focus has been what, Coach? Uh, refocusing for the next region game. You know, a lot was mm. made uh, of the, the Houston County game with them coming in 5-0 and last week, ranked 7th or 8th in the state. They were the leading scoring offense in the state. So so a lot was made of that, and uh, it was a big game. And coming off that win, you know, we've got to get our kids refocused to play the very next game. We haven't been on the road in a while, so I think that's the big focus is, hey, number one, put that game behind us, refocus this week. And then, two, we've got to be able to go on the road and play, be ready to play just like we are at home. Did you see something by Thursday? I, I love talking to coaches based, like, uh, usually about the day before the game. Is You've done the film work. You've seen the practice. You have a pretty good idea which way the, the, the wind's blowing for that particular matchup. Did you feel good about what you saw? We were like, I, I like our odds against Houston County uh, last week. Well, you know, we feel we've been in a lot of big games. And, you know, fortunately, we've been blessed here. We haven't lost many games over the past mm-hmm. several years. So, you know, our kids have a lot of confidence. Certainly, we were uh, – very respectful of Houston County. They've got a great quarterback. They've got a new head coach who's done a great job there. So we were very, very respectful of, of their abilities and the type of team they had. And our kids definitely were, were taking them very seriously. Uh, were we confident in our abilities going into the game? We were, but we also knew that we had to go out and play well and execute to be able to get a win because it was a good football team and that was very well coached that we were playing in Houston County. Um, which position group would you say has been kind of the, the backbone of your season as a whole, just with your rotations and everybody else? Who are you most pleased with? You know, it's it's, it's kind of hard with this team. You know, we mm. uh, obviously the running back group led by Osmani is, is one of the ones. Our defensive line has is, is played really, really well, uh, mostly underclassmen with the exception of one guy there uh, that have done a good job. Our linebackers have been solid, our defensive backs. I mean, it's really hard to say with this team. I mean, there's, mm. we're kind of a, a solid team across the board. Uh, I, I don't know if one group, other than I guess you could say the run, the back, the offensive backfield group has really stood out. But I, I think we're pretty solid, and even probably more than any team we've had. Um, when you look at last year and uh, watching some tape, if you had to go back and watch some of the stuff that y'all were running last year versus what you're doing this year, what have you what have you flipped or evolved a little bit this year uh, that's a little bit different that's worked out that you're really happy about? You know, I think we're, we're, we're pretty similar to where we were last year. Uh, mm. I think we're moving to where we're throwing the ball a little bit more than we did last year. Uh, defensively, um, we're, we're, we're able to do a little bit more coverage-wise than we have as far as changing it up and mixing things up just because of the nature of, the, of, of our team. You know, last year's season was unusual coming off a, an overtime loss in the state finals to Buford. And when the brackets, you know, came out early, it, it saw if we both won our region, we were going to meet in the third round. So two met in the third round which is what happened so kind of all year last year you know we had to fight the tendency well if you play even if you win the game if you play like that you're not going to beat Buford well the Buford game are we ready for that and you, you kind of had to put that in everybody's mind say hey, we got a lot of games to play and beat before we we play Buford so that was what we had to fight all last year um whereas this year with, with Buford moving up a classification we're not hearing about that but there's plenty of good teams in our class that we're going to have to beat and uh, and, in, and in our region to start with, I think we have four teams ranked in the top 10 in just our region. So 
um, you know, we've got our work cut out for us there. But I think uh, we're probably a little bit more versatile on offense than we were last year. Um, and uh, defensively, I think we're able to do a little bit more coverage-wise. We were mix things up a little bit more. Buford moving up is weird, man. As a as a guy who grew up in this state, like in Georgia, and I mean, they were at the low, low end uh, coming up, even back with the Darius Walker years. The uh, I think what was his name, the Oregon quarterback who went over there, uh, Roper, um, years and years ago. I'm dating myself here a little bit, coach. <laughs> but I mean, just seeing them at nearing, they're not set. Are they six A or class seven A? They're the highest class. Yeah, now. they're in the highest now, yeah. which is just wow it shows how much that area has grown but i mean goodness gracious that was not the case uh, oh, uh but i'm glad it, it's more competition for them because that was like the whole thing is they wouldn't uh, <laughs> play part view during that time and everything else because of the because of the size are you uh happy with just kind of the way your schedule unfolded and just kind of where your region is and uh who you're playing against year over year um you know what i like this year you know the regions came out it was a new year uh, yeah and we had more teams in the region, which locked us into more games, which I liked. You know, being in yeah. South Georgia, that's always something. Uh, just because of the lack of uh, the lack of mm-hmm. uh, the lack of teams down in this area and the travel, sometimes mm-hmm. regions aren't as big, and it makes it a little bit tougher to find games. So having more teams in the region, we've got some teams in that haven't been in, like Tift County veterans who were playing this week, Thomas County Central, that are relatively close by South Georgia standards, an hour mm-hmm. or so away. So uh, it's it's nice to have some more games uh, closer by, locked in, and, and even though our region's still tough, um, you know traditionally, you know we we got about Austin there, and, and they've moved out. We played them the last several years, but we've got a lot of teams that are close that have, have locked in. It's still extremely competitive with you know Houston, Thomas County Central, and Northside and ourselves all being ranked in the top ten. Um, so it's still a very very competitive region, but I, I do like the fact there's more teams in the region, and we've got some teams closer to us than we've had in the past. Do you think we're going to see more teams travel? I mean, I know Brookwood went to Vegas uh, this year, and I think Colin Till did that a year or two ago as well. Do you think you're going to see more and more, which is with TV and just with the – just I maybe mean, just recruiting too is just to see more of these star kids bounce around and play some of the other uh, star kids uh, in the regular season if you could do it? Do you think we'll see more of it? I think that's certainly a possibility as you get mm-hmm. more people involved. You know, we've been blessed here. We've been on ESPN two different times, so mm-hmm. – uh, pretty pretty cool experience of course we got to host the one here when we were in the geico bowl in 2018 yeah. so that was a pretty neat neat thing and uh we, we've actually had talks about playing some people from out of state but uh mm-hmm. it hasn't it hasn't transpired yet you know it's tough to make those long, tough to make those long trips especially early in the year but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah i think it's something you'll see i don't know if you'll see it a tremendous amount more but i think it's something you're going to continue to see as long as you have ESPN and these other big networks involved, and especially if they can make it financially feasible for people, it's neat to get to travel and play somebody from a different area. Uh, what can veterans do that uh, will challenge your team this week? Well, they've got a really good quarterback, and then they've got two receivers that are really, really good football players. And mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing is we've got to keep those guys under control. Those two receivers they've got are, are excellent and not taking away from the rest of their team because they've got some other good players also. But I'd say that's definitely the strength of their team is their passing game with the quarterback and receivers. With the amount of time and just your success at Lee County with this year, um, the way it's going, does this feel like a team that can win, that r- kind of run the gauntlet and win the title? Do you feel pretty good about where you're at in that regard? Uh, you know, you never know with that. I mean, so many things have to come together. You've got to stay healthy. You've got to continue mm-hmm. to be better as the year goes on. You know, our goals every year are, uh, for the last several years, are, are to play a long time. You know, mm-hmm. and we try, you know, you have to, 
it's kind of unique. You know, you have to, we, we embrace those expectations where, Hey, we want to play for a state championship. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side, you can't get so caught up and Hey, it's state championship or bus. You've got to take it one week at a time and focus on getting better every week. And like I, I alluded to earlier, that was the danger last year was constantly talking about, Hey, uh, we got Buford talking about Buford. Well, you can't worry about Buford when you're in the middle of the season, just because mm-hmm. you, you're slated to possibly play each other in the third round. You've got to worry about that week and that opponent getting better that week. So it's it's great that we have the high expectations here. You know, we expect to play a lot of games or our kids expect to play a lot of games. Um, but on the on the flip side, you've got to go ahead and, and focus on just that week and take one opponent at a time. So you know, what, do I think we've got a team that can do that? I mean, that's the expectation here, and this team's certainly no exception. We, we expect to hopefully be playing in Week 15. But on the flip side, you know, we had a lot of work to do and a lot of tough teams to play before then. So we'll just see how things work out. Hopefully we can stay healthy and keep getting better. We'll end on this. Uh, if uh, folks are coming down to watch Lee County on a, on a Friday night at any point the rest of this year, where would you recommend? What is your go-to food spot? What uh, What is the go-to local? I'd recommend they get a big, big Chris, big Chris catering, which is right okay. here. You know, there's not a lot of food options right in the city of Leesburg, but big yeah. Chris catering right here around the corner. You know, big Chris uh, has been supportive of the program for many years. His son, little Chris, who's probably six four, three hundred pounds, who played. Okay. It. What happened to medium Chris? Is he getting left out to dry? Where's medium Chris? Medium Chris. You got big Chris and little Chris, who's big. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, but Big Chris is a big guy, but a yeah. great food, great home cooking and uh, home cooking type food. Mm. And uh, if you come there, get it. Definitely go through and hit hit Big Chris if you're. What's your plate? Are you a barbecue guy? Like what? What are we putting on the oh, plate? Oh man, I like a lot of things on there. I'd probably get either the chicken fingers and fries or uh, some wings and fries. Okay. All right. What's your game day ritual like? Do you have anything that you do every single Friday that you just have to do? Is there anything you do? Nah, there's nothing that I just, okay. just have to do on, on Fridays. I'm not, I'm not a superstitious guy. Are you a coffee guy? No, don't drink coffee now. I drink no a lot coffee. Of coffee. A lot of Pepsi Zero, but uh, no coffee. A lot of Pepsi Zero. How many are we talking here a day? So, How many uh, Pepsi Zeros are we going today? Oh, it depends on the day. Probably a two liter a day. Okay. Probably a two liter a day. I go through a lot of Pepsi Zero. Interesting. Okay. In the South, in Leesburg, he's the, the Pepsi Zero. We couldn't do Coke Zero. How, how much grief have you gotten about the Pepsi uh, infatuation, Coach? Not, not a whole lot, surprisingly. Okay. Not a whole lot. So There you go. Well, Coach, how do the good folks uh, support your program uh, with everything coming up? You got the game this Friday night against veterans, but how do they support uh, for the local listeners uh, for your, uh, your Lee County program? Uh, we've got great support in this area. You know, our community uh, – being the only high school in the county, you know, mm. we, get, we get tremendous support from Lee County and, and this area. Uh, you know, our administration, our principal, Dr. Karen Hancock, our superintendent, uh, Dr. Jason Miller, they do an outstanding job uh, supporting not only not only football, but all athletics and all students as a whole, academics, arts and everything. And that's the neat thing about Lee County is, you know, they, the community and, and the leaders in our school system want the kids to be great at everything and they support them in everything, academics, arts, athletics. So that's a neat thing here. We've got a lot of good things going and we've got a great school system and a lot of great kids. Awesome. Well, coach, this has been a blast. I appreciate you making the time this week. Good luck on Friday and uh, good luck the rest of the way. And we'll have to circle back again soon. Absolutely. Chase, again, thanks again. Big fan. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks, Coach. Bye, buddy. Bye. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.